All right. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much for being here. This is going to be fantastic. Give everyone a moment to arrive. All right. <laughs> We're going to give everyone a moment to arrive for the stream to come online. And thank you, everyone, for being here. I see many familiar faces in the comments section. Thank you all. I'm going to actually, all right, here we are. This is the presentation. Let us begin. Thank you all for being here. The food and fertilizer shortage solution. That's what we're talking about today. So this is probably on your mind. This is on my mind. This should be on everyone's mind. Um, because the headlines on this can be misleading. Uh, and as many of you probably guessed from my email, as many of you probably guessed from the solution part, um, I'm gonna take this head on. So there's this nitrogen fertilizer, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, Haber-Bosch process nitrogen fertilizer crisis because it's all made out of petrochemicals. So they're seeing these surging costs, Everyone's worried about feeding the world, providing for families, people making a living. It's due to high gas prices. You've probably already put this all together. Um, this was coming on the horizon. It's something that we've been talking about for years. Um, so the, 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 the crisis here that confounds me, that confuses me is that if you look closely here at that, that's, what, what's that number? That's right, that's 78% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. And I just get so frustrated with the, the narratives and the, the misinformation that's going on because we, we, A, have legumes, we can do cover crops, we've got manures, we've got all those things. But at the same time, there's like much more to the story here. If, if half of the nitrogen in some studies is coming from the air, and it's coming from like aerial roots that are have have microbes in their in the roots and on their surfaces. Then then what what oh that's right almost a hundred percent eighty two percent using how we can measure, and we're always finding out how limited our measurements are. So we have to always think that there's more whenever we measure something. I mean people are finding nutrients showing up on our standardized tests that weren't there before after they changed the pH and EH. And they're like, what's going on? It's like, it was always there. We just couldn't see it with our testing methods. And so when I see this 29% to 82% comes from the bacteria inside and on the surfaces and on the roots, it really makes me think that maybe, maybe this is, there's something more going on here because the nitrogen, solution is all around us in living soil it's all around us in the natural world and so it, it, this crisis um it, it extends to peak phosphorus too right people have been talking about how phosphorus we've, we're running out of phosphorus we're running out of, of nitrogen synthetic nitrogen all this this hoorah and this hubbub when again let's let's i mean they're on the right side they're going on the, the right side, meaning the physical right-handed, right? 
right side of this image, they're mining for it. I'm using acids to pull it out of the mine to, to create their phosphorus fertilizer. Not good. On the left side, though, what? look at this. There, there's animal manure, eggshells, teeth, and bone. Oh, wait. Those are usually the things that people are throwing out or composting and then seeing in their compost for years. I bet there's a Korean natural farming prep for that. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. So, so, and not only that, I mean, just like think about just adding, adding our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, which is the, the mycorrhizal fungi that they inoculate plants with. It bonds, it partners with over 90% of plants. Some estimates it's like 96%. It's wild that we don't, all those numbers when they're like for all plants on earth, it's all plants that they've tested, not all plants on earth in, in reality. <laughs> and so it's like, we have to understand that all these numbers are from what we know and, and, and they demonstrate the limitations of our understanding and also an exciting a door that's being opened right now that you all are part of today. So our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, this is the inoculant fungi, unless you're getting ecto and you're putting it on like, like, like your hardwood trees and, and you're doing like reforestry in the Canadian North, you know what I mean? Like most of us are doing everything else, which is AMF. And so it's going to be very easy to find that um, mycorrhizal fungi um, usually is what they call it. But it's our buscular mycorrhizal fungi specifically creates this, this relationship with the roots that goes so deep and then reaches out so effectively that um, the thing with all fungi is they, they, they release these digestive enzymes, they digest externally, and they increase phosphorus uptake by 10,000 times. But, but you got to understand the actual picture here. And I do it in other presentations and whatnot, but I just can't let it go. <laughs> but you got to understand that they're literally creating these pools of phosphorus that reform into crystals around them. And then they suck the phosphorus up like a straw. And, you know, phosphorus, um, phosphoresces, right? It's phosphorescent, right? That term glowing. Yeah, there's actually a, a wavelength of light and you can, that you can excite things at and then you can capture it with a certain uh, lens of mission to see fungi glow. And so we can do this with microscopes. Um, we, 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 there's theories that nematodes and pinworms can see at this frequency because this is the, the, the sliver of light that reaches them down at that level, that wavelength of light. So it's really wild, but it's just nature. They're just doing what they do. And so it does seem like we do have a different kind of crisis here, doesn't it? Of ignorance, of biological deficiency. This is dead soil thinking. They're looking at dead soils and going, well, I don't see anything. So that's based all of our conclusions off of this dead soil. And then when living things show up, they're seen as enemies and invaders. And these dead soils have misled scientists, farmers, and so many more for decades upon decades, but only when, when farmers started to get it right did this in recent decades come to the surface. But there's more to this. There's misinformation out there. There's people actively working and somehow they don't have like day jobs. 
day and night online attacking different di different folks doing different awesome things and there's misinformation campaigns right now about healthy natural foods and and all sorts of health things the medical world and the natural health world is, oh dear they're they're under attack and and so is the same case in farming so <laughs> does this mean that their food shortages won't happen because you got these solutions and well the reality is it won't happen everywhere because there are people figuring out what we're going to be talking about today. There are leaders in this field, uh, certain areas of America that are thriving and um, it won't happen to everyone because um, in general, this is a, a trickle down pain and um, the people that are on the edge of things are going to feel the pain first and then it's going to move up and no one knows how bad things are going to get, but it looks bad. I mean, when Chris Trump, someone who travels the world in some of the, you know, um, poor, so some of the areas that are, are going to be hit harder because of these farmers are living close to the edge, the farmers that he's working with are going to be okay because they're practicing what we're going to be talking about today. But it does look bad it does look really scary, um, especially when Chris says it's inevitable. And it's not this year. Uh, this is our year that we have to prepare. So that's why I'm talking about soil. That's why we're talking about preparing now because it's next year, because it's this year's harvest that we're missing. It's this year's uh, like, the engine of, of repetition and, and consistent, consistently building momentum is going to be lost by what's not happening, the lack of farming this year. And also the, the crop failures, there's been huge crop failures. So it's next year that the hardship will hit, um, but these mis this misinformation, these avoidable catastrophes, um, it feels a little bit like there's many, well, maybe a lot, like there's many, these things are manufactured shortages um people are saying they're politicized i, I i'm i'm also i'm like in the 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 side of being like wow they if this is planned it's done so confusingly and so messily that it's hard to make sense of it um i think that there is a vulnerability in our systems and there's a lot of people taking advantage they're falling over each other to take advantage um and and and, and maybe these things um, are manufactured I don't know um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna venture to guess but but what I do know is that I always feel better when I talk about the solutions and then I take action I never feel good talking about and delving into like the dark side of things that always makes me like oh and so I don't live there but we all need to be prepared we, if, it, if it doesn't look good, it doesn't look good. You can't change that. I can't change that. If it's politicized, if there's something big going on, I can't change that. You can't change that. But what we can change is we can change how prepared we are. We can change how prepared our community is. We can change how our local economies behave so that in these times that are coming, our local economy was prepared. And people were ready to scale to fill the need because we can.
And when we do, we have an opportunity to strengthen each other in a way that we've never had an opportunity to do before and an opportunity to share best practices in a way that we've never had before and um, a way to take back control, independence and local like local economies in a way that we've never had before. So um, I see this as a huge amount of opportunity and that's like really what I always focus on. Um, but, but who am I? <laughs> I'm Matt Bowers. I'm a citizen scientist. I used to be a rock and roll musician. I used to play with all sorts of people. I met my wife in the midst of all that craziness when I was a young rocking musician. And she got cancer uh, like year two of our marriage. So I was still in the honeymoon phase and we just had a new baby. And, uh, you know, like this is like we're still baking things in the oven in the mind. I was like young when this was happening. I was still developing as a person, you know. In those first few years as a dad, it's really actually are another shaping time period in, in, in your life. Um, and this cancer hit and it was the hardest thing for that I'd ever had to deal with. Uh, and it totally changed me as a person. And when the doctors had her, so they didn't give me choices they kept doing things and then afterwards they would tell me what to do or say and i told they made me tell my wife that she had cancer they didn't give us a choice about their her, her thyroid being removed they were biopsying it and then dr snitter literally took the whole thyroid out in the middle of it and said it was all cancerous and then they told me I had to tell her I was in shock. And then I told her while she was like coming out of it and like she was like doubly in shock. It was so poorly handled. I was furious. And then when they gave her the radiation, three months later, she got like really aggressive cancer that almost went to her lymph nodes and killed her. And they had to do a, another massive amount of surgery. And when I talked to the doctors about it, they couldn't meet my eye. They were, they were, they were acting guilty. And I was like, so you, this radiation then could have caused her cancer. And let's be clear about what this is. This is the radioactive iodine that was like leaking out of Fukushima. They bring it in, a, they're wearing a suit. They bring in the box. They put the box down and open the lid. And there's another box inside. And my wife has to open that box. And she's not wearing a suit. And I took her home and we made sure there was distance and protection for myself and my mom. The baby was with her sisters, but all the grandmas in that cancer ward went home on public transportation. And so when her trash, everything she touches for six months is radioactive and it can be caught at the, at the dump and then traced to her and then they can get, we can get in legal issues. This is just everything was saved, all her trash, everything she touched for six months. She blew her nose, everything. All those women and, and men, but mostly, sadly, she was saying it's mostly women, these grandmothers. She was the only young woman for going home on the train in New York City, and everything they touched was radioactive for six months, thus spreading cancer because it eats away at your thyroid 
And then if it damages your thyroid, heck, you need levothyroxine, thyroid supplement, which is the number one drug in America at the time and still today, or, or maybe today it may have changed, but last time I checked. So as you can see, I, I couldn't trust doctors and, and I got really, it was a different time period in my life. I, I have a lot more skills now and the things I do in the morning to be a happy guy. And I have a lot to be grateful for. We faced cancer seven times and beat it, you know, spoiler alert, right? But um, I just couldn't trust the doctors. And I left that amazing job, Rachel Ray's husband's bass player with Saturday Night Live drummer. Um, and he's been there since the 90s, his drummer. So he's been there through like the entire time that it was awesome, funny. Um, but but I was a cushy gig, you know what I mean? I got to do whatever I want. I play bass. He has four strings, not complicated. And we left though, because she asked me to and she prayed about it. I didn't want to leave. I, I, I was adamant that I didn't want to leave, uh, but I prayed about two and that was the answer. And so we left and then we did the Gerson therapy to stop the cancer coming back. And I don't know if you know the Gerson therapy, it's coffee enemas and endless juices. It's in a special diet. And I was the caregiver. I did it for two years and then lost my mind because it's like eight juices a day, the cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And so it did work though, but I had like kind of a nervous breakdown. And in that time period, overcoming all that, fighting back the cancers, um, we had another child and I became a public school teacher. I was kind of a crazy teacher. I fell in love with seeds. I threw, did a throw so garden. This is me in my garden. Um, I was growing in 140 degree soils. It was wild. That's is in that, this is with, without water and that in that 140 degree soil. So I had a lot of fun. And then I actually created a curriculum while I was a teacher as it, I did this as an example for my students, trying to get them to kick, do Kickstarters, except my Kickstarter made as much money as I make after taxes as a teacher, you know? Uh, and so I was like flabbergasted and it started going around the world and I got hooked and I became this this whole thing that I am now, which is a the online educator and a teacher, and I provide curriculum to people all over the world. I'm an entrepreneur and a soil expert, a citizen scientist, seed farmer, and family guy. My family, it's all grown up. My wife is doing better and better. Still, um, lots of struggles. Um, the radiation is not a consequence-free um, choice. The removal of the thyroid has incredibly serious consequences. So um we we do the best we can and and uh we are we are in it together and our family our family is is incredibly close we actually spent we, we homeschool our boys and um it's all focused around that bridge to a regenerative future and that's really what we're talking about today for like my children for all of our children it's about caring for that future and putting in the action the care in action for that future to be a reality. So what's the best way to prepare for that future? That's really what we're talking about. You know what I mean? Um, especially with the, all these supply chain disruptions with these, I mean, you know what it's, I'm, I'm fine with supply chain disruptions. If it's like your Xbox, I'm fine with that. If it's, it, you know what I mean? If it's like the latest iPhone isn't coming on time, I'm okay. We're going to be okay. You know what I mean? But when it's food, when 
our local farmers and ranchers can't get their food to people in America, but foreign foods can. And the inspection like level is like this on our food and like that are non-existent on, on the foreign foods, the imports. And then we're so reliant upon imports because of this to have the instability there and the, the crap quality, they irradiate things. I mean, things that are marked organic, they turn out to be sprayed, like whole nine yards. It's a mess. Um, and that's something to say about, you know, the incredible people that are in all these different countries all over the world doing incredible things. Like, that's not the food that's reaching us. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. The food made by regenerative folk is so good that it doesn't leave the bioregion because everyone buys them out. Let's just be real. Their stuff gets bought up like it's like, like it's hotcakes. Okay, so I want to help prepare people financially and food-wise because those are the linchpins to like the day-to-day. And families, our kids, um, the stability of our entire civilization really depends on food. And if we're talking about food, we're talking about soil. When we need regenerative soil, soil that regenerates itself, soil that's resilient, um, soil that gets better and better um, to really address this. And so it's better and better over time. It's self-healing. That's what I mean by all this. If you master this, you'll unlock all the potential of your soils and all the potential of your plants and thus the highest levels of nutrition in your food. But before all we get into that, let's talk about what we're going to learn today. We're going to talk about the five indicators of soil health. Uh, They're very pragmatic, easy to understand and put into action. We're going to talk about how you can improve any soil and talk about how you can grow faster, growing healthier, more productive and more resilient plants. And these things will change your life because you're going to be able to save time, money, energy and effort. And all of those things, they are pain, right? It's like you lose time, it is pain. You lose money, it is pain. If you don't have the energy to do something, it is painful because literally it doesn't get done properly. And if your efforts go to waste, it it is painful. So I want people to be able to avoid all of that loss. I want people to instead gain because with plants, with with everything in life, with our own bodies, you know, we either are gaining or losing it's almost impossible to stay in that like neutral teetering kind of place. And the reality with the stuff we're going to learn today is you can apply it at any scale and things will just get better and better every year. So I just want to reiterate that you can make this happen. This is possible. This is, this is, I've seen it done. I've seen people do it all over the world. All right. So singing frog farm, they are in California and they're doing an amazing job. They are no-till pioneers. And I understand, you know, you're like going to be like, what about Root Stout? They are market garden commercial growers that when they started, there was no one they could find to model after. And so they created their own methods. Um, And so in their beds on their farm, they went from 2% to 12% soil organic matter in 12 years. So that sounds cool on one hand, but what does that mean? 
Well, if you think about what Elizabeth Kaiser, her and her husband run that farm, says every 1% increase in organic matter, it's an additional 20,000 gallons of water per acre of land. So let's just do some math, you know, a little math. And then we discover that's a lot of water. Try holding 200,000 gallons in tanks on your property. That's a lot of tanks. And the reality is the soil can hold the water more effectively than you can. It's right there at the root. It's right there in the soil. So do you think California needs this? They're in California. They've been there for years. They're just doing compost. They're buying it. They're making some, but they're mostly buying it. And then they're making, they have perennial hedgerows that they put in the moment they started their farms that are like the, the, the stoppers in each, in each area so that if there's any water moving through, it stops it. And, and any wind, you know, it slows it, pushes it up. Anything that's holding it drops it. So they're creating these microclimates using these perennial hedgerows, their catchment. And then they're not tilling at all. They're only adding and they're digging to add each new addition. So they're growing their starts in greenhouses in good compost and then they're adding more compost when they add it in and they're disturbing the area just to add that in when they plant it so there's like compost then and then compost later and like like it's compost compost all the time they're using compost so and then there's subtle earthworks i mean this i was looking at the earthworks and i was like holy cow these are like some of the most subtle earthworks I've ever seen. And it just goes to show that we do not need to have giant earthworks. Giant earthworks tend to be more erosive because you create more steep sides. So they're gentle, subtle earthworks, no-till, very gentle, very easy, unbelievable results. But what if you're already permaculture? Matt, I'm permaculture. Already do it, already did it, done it. Will this make a difference what you're talking about today? Well, this is, you know, a university level permaculture farm that they use for teaching, that they've been using for, with teaching my curriculum as well as many other top uh, permaculture teacher curriculums for years. In one season, using just the book, they doubled their previous year's harvest. And this all goes to feed the homeless. So, um, and and people who who are going hungry. So this is incredible. This is like really, really awesome. And and think about doubling. If we're talking about you know U.S. farmers, if we're talking about, um, and and you might be like a farmer right now and be like, well, Matt, the reason we're at the highest levels is because we've got these concentrates of these fertilizers and we don't get that from manure. Actually from Korean natural farming preps, they are actually testing their inputs and they are getting those phosphorus numbers. They're getting those nitrogen numbers and they are soluble, deliverable, exactly the way the synthetics were. 
So game over for synthetics. We are, we are closing in. And if you watch this week, if you watch this week, the aquaculture with Steve Raisner, you heard the end of synthetic nitrogen. It's going to be aquaculture. It's fish poo, so high in nitrates, right? Yeah. And then we deliver it right to the farmers. Farmers start doing it themselves, little tilapia farms right there on site, feeding them their, you know, ag waste and this, you know, and then they just, whoa, this is going to disrupt everything. We've got the solutions. We've got this. So doubling of the food, that's what we're talking about. Even with my first garden, let's talk about this. In the Central Valley, brittle Mediterranean, it's fire, pyrophytic landscape. And in fact, the landscape, uh, because of it, it was so poorly managed over the past 60 years by the, the state and by the federal, by, like, by the loggers, King Cotton, I can keep going. Um, this landscape is not returning to what it was. It's changing. And you can see that there's no little trees growing. Instead, you have different things growing. You've got weeds growing. And, and grassland and scrub. And um, if you look lower in elevation, you'll see that scrub oak is taking over. Um, and so, I mean, you can see part of it is bark beetle damage, the orange is bark beetle damage. And then where it's see-through, that's burn damage. And so you can see that next year it will burn. Well, what's going on is that as the bark beetle goes, it creates fire prone areas that burn and the bark beetle keeps going. And then it just they chase each other so this was my context and then decomposed granite i mean it's like large pieces of sand what's wild is that that melts okay with biology oxidized and alkaline this this is the, the 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 bane of california this is the number one limiting factor on california soils they're oxidized they're alkaline so they've lost their energy they've lost their carbon they've locked up their nutrients or gassed them off and it's partially because the soils are just so dang hot. Um, there needs to be a lot more done um, to allow the actual runoff from the upper levels of, of, of the Sierra Nevadas to actually reach these areas. Um, so there, the largest body of water west of the Mississippi was Tulare Lake. It was freshwaters full of ducks and fish. It was an unbelievable paradise. It would flood all the way up to Sacramento every single year, even like people with grandparents right now, your grandparents could paddle up and down this every, every winter. So this, this is where they would go when times were tight to get food. Um, it was something that always gave to the people. Um, this is the kind of thing we're missing from our, our society and culture right now. The ability to be like, Oh, it's hard times. Well, I'm just going to go hunt ducks. Cause that's easy, you know, or, or fish. Cause that's easy. And, and that knowledge is being lost too, but those places were lost almost a generation ago or two generations ago, or even four generations ago, depending on where you are in America and what we're talking about. But the point is, is that literally the landscape had all the correct features to support us in times that were hard and we damned it. Isn't that funny how that works both ways? We damned it. We damned the land and we damned ourselves. 
And we, and we then took all that water and, and funneled it to the cities and the cities use it once and flush it. And so what did I do? Well, I was like, I can put in some swales. Mind you, if you put in swales in the wrong county in California, they show up. And so you have to do these like uh, switches, which is swales that are filled ditches, essentially, that are filled with, um, with uh, wood chips. So they're hidden from the landscape. Some people are actually filling it with wood chips and then covering the top of a loose layer of dirt and planting it to hide their swales in California. It's a sad state when, when you have to, you know, uh, conceal things like you're a criminal just because you want the land to be, re be rehydrated. Um, this is what I did. You basically are setting things up so it's flat so that the water can't go anywhere. And it was amazing. It was just absolutely incredible. I did it with my boys, planted all of it. It grew out, it grew big, it grew bold. The, the, the ground changed color around it. You guys can see the dark brown compared to the light tan. And yes, it was oxidized alkaline soil. So the <laughs> things got really big because actinobacterial, non-mycorrhizal in other words, is alkaline and desert, desert you know, um, arid climate loving soil. So that's why that grew so well. I added compost and compost tea and melted that. I planted nitrogen fixtures and a huge diversity and it turned into this. And I just threw those seeds on the ground and watered it, covered it with a little bit of mulch. And then it was this, and just beautiful food. Um, this is some of the corn I grew. This is a rare, uh, apparently it was impossible to grow when I grew it and uh, got written up into this book. So it was, it was such a big deal to people in my region that I was doing this, that generational farmers were driving up from Fresno to put their hands in my soil and smell it and talk to me about what I did. And I was a school teacher. It was such a big deal that I, I grew these seeds right here that Baker Creek invited me to represent them as a spokesperson. And I moved to Missouri. And it was all because of the soil. Changing the soil allowed me to grow the most incredible things. And it's also, you know, transforming places all over America, all over the world right now. So this is Governor's Island. Um, let's see if this will change for us. This, these barracks here were broken down and turned into rubble. Um, and what happened was uh, Todd Harrington uh, with a Dr. Lane Ingham as the advisor were brought in to transform it into this. And they used just compost, mycorrhizae, and, and, and work and time and nature and microbes and compost teas. And it transformed this area into a native forest. What's so wild is this is right off of New York. This is an island right off of New York City. It's where I saw Radiohead perform when I was a youth and during the amnesiac tour. And it's so beautiful. It's so stunning and that it's inspired people all over the world. And it's actually now a destination. 
um, it's become a, a destination. And it was just compost and mycorrhizae and then planting the correct native plants. And now it's a glamping site where people are tucked into this native forest. They've got these beautiful grasslands. It was, it was literally rubble. And they ate the rubble. They transformed that toxic soil and they locked up the toxins. They digested all and started breaking down all that rubble and grew over it and created this paradise right within sight of New York City and the Statue of Liberty. This is a special thing. When I heard about this, I was truly inspired. And then when I heard who was doing glamping there, I couldn't believe it because it was my best man for my wedding. And the guy who was next to me in his stroller while our moms had lunch while my brothers were ski racing. And then later, when we were old enough, we learned to ski together. We learned to race together. That's Fleet Pete. That's my best friend from childhood. And my, the advisor on that project was my, my original soil mentor, Dr. Elaine Lindum. And so it feels like full circle. It felt like a message to me personally that this is this this works at the highest levels and this is what you're meant to do and i was you know i am a i am a permaculture teacher i am a permaculture practitioner but it seems like more and more i am following this path of soil and it's not just a new thing it's an ancient thing and let's talk about terra preta down in brazil 10,000 years ago in the Amazon, there was ancient corn called hyacinthe, and it was wild. No, not that corn. Not that corn. That's chopi. That's the first sweet corn. That's cool, but no, this one. It's a little different. Not as exciting. Kind of confusing at this point, right? You're like, what is that? It was to make beer. Now it makes sense, I hope. So they were actually simmering these giant clay pots, and it wasn't like gray clay, so it broke often, hence pot shards comes in later. They're brewing this, this, this fermentation, this light fermentation, because, you know, simmering it doesn't give the same thing as like bottling it and letting it go through the secondary ferment to make alcohol. This is light beer. This is um, heavy in lactobacillus. The heating and simmering it, uh, of uh, of of the microbes and of substrates literally has the lactobacillus wake up. Dr. James F. White confirmed this in a conversation we had uh, about a year or two ago. And I know that, you know, Nigel, um, the the author, Nigel Palmer, it was doing it because Jadam. It's amazing how full circle we come, how we hear things and we're like, oh, I'm going to do that. Maybe it's deeper. Maybe there's a reason that this stuff resonates with you too. And so they're simmering it because this is what they did. And even the Iroquois in America, in Northern America, were actually simmering the roots of cousins of corn to then use that soaked, simmered corn, uh, soaked, simmered weed water to soak their corn seeds 
so let me just do that again. Um, they were taking weeds that were cousins to corns or grass weeds, and they were simmering their roots in pots of water, then using that water to soak the seeds before planting them. Whoa. And, and that's with a story that James was, was conveying to me. And he was saying that the only thing that he could think of it doing would be to wake up the lactobacilli. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. So the Iroquois are doing it. Jadam's doing heating. Nigel's now doing heating. The Terra Preta, the, the, the Brazilian Amazonians are doing it. So there's something here. So they're simmering, they're fermenting beer. And according to Michael Collins, who said this still goes on, the grandmother goes around and spits. She comes around and spits in each of the brews, inoculating it with their biome. Okay, <laughs> key part perhaps. And it created this soil in the process because that pot of, of, of liquid that was corn going to become corn beer sometimes would break. And so this yeast rich and yeast is uh, uh, Saccharomyces uh, cerevisia. It is an endophyte. So you have lab, you have, uh, you have um, yeasts, you have um, all these other things that are just naturally occurring in the compost that get, got added to this, this, this pit. You have manures, you have fish bones, you have leftover fish bits. You have uh, the biochar because it was stopped mid. And so they, they would fill in these pits. They would become latrines because of the biochar, they wouldn't stink. And they would turn in to these incredible sinks and batteries, they're bioreactors, and they were, they were pit composts. And this consortium of biology that was unique to the situation, but not entirely unique to the world of humans all over the world, we're all working with lab, we're all working with yeast in different ways. But because of the environment, the warmth, the moisture of the, of the, of the, of the Amazon, it created this unique situation and it created this flywheel effect and the selection process for who was the most regenerative happened. And so the most aggressive, the most beneficial microbes arose. And that's why they say this is, you know, human made soil because this is not, there's, a, there's something going on here that we set in motion and can't be stopped. They'll actually sell Terra Preta by the truckload and dig it down to 10 centimeters and then put organic matter on top. And then it actually goes down and then regrows and eats away at the under, at the, the, the lower horizons of soil. Um, these were compost related corn beer parties of the highest order. And this is the result. I mean, that's pretty honorable. You know, I don't drink, right, right, right. But, but, whoa, whoa. If we started throwing parties where the end results of each party were a massive amount of, you know, happy people 
and really incredible soil, I think we got mission accomplished, right? We don't necessarily need the alcohol nowadays. We can do the brew. There's many other things. <laughs> but, but, you know, choose as you, as you will. Um, but uh, I, I'm just saying, this is wild. This is something they did for fun. It became normal. It became culture. And it's still here today. We talk about monuments of human achievement, the Sphinx, the Great Wall, this, that, and the other. I think the Amazonian soil might be greater than those stone artifacts in many ways. I get the engineering side of the pyramids. They're beautiful. Their alignment. But this is one of those things that we don't have any other examples of. There's pyramids, you know, in the Americas, there's pyramids over there. There's more than just the Great Pyramids. There's other pyramids. Terra Preta is unique. And we can try to recreate it. I'm going to tell you how. But there's something special about what they were doing. And I would say it has to do with their diet as well. They were in a feedback loop for probably hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of years with the environment, with the, their manure. The ultimate communication tool is our humanure with the right biology, the right system, so guaranteed to be safe. Remember that earthworms, uh, composting worms, within three weeks, have erased all the pathogens. So we need to partner properly. We need to systematize things in the right way so that the future, our monuments, will be towering trees, rich black soils, and we can say we did that. And instead of us looking at these giant, massive tree stumps, in California, in all their forests, going, we did that. It's awful. So DIY Terra Prada, let's get to it. Five cousins, you know, um, or a cover crop of your choosing. I got a video on five cousins. Um, it's something I came up with, but I really did it to show you what you can do and how we all can create our own mixes, like the three sisters. So the five cousins is cowpeas, buckwheat, daikon radish, amaranth, and sorghum. And they work together quite uniquely. I got a video on it. Um, but doing that and then sheet composting with biochar and EM, maybe some pottery shards in there. So like, let's look at this. This is what's naturally there. You see it's a very short layer. It's black, but it's not like brown black. It's black from from it being anaerobic and it's got that whitish mm, you know what that is the actinomycetes the false fungi and the blackness of the, there's char there from the fires no doubt but let's compare um look at the sand in particular um down that sand layer just look at that see how brown it is we're gonna look at it again so here's uh, a place where uh, I was able to apply the sheet mulching, 
you can see that it's different. You can see little specks of pottery. You can see little specks of uh, uh, biochar. And the soil itself has just roots throughout it, just like thick. I don't see the clay layer. Huh. Right? It's because it's way more incorporated. Everything's more incorporated. The humic compounds are combining all those different particles in different structures and different uh, combinations uh, and, and designs, essentially. Um, and you can see from the sand color difference that the humic compound, the organic matter, is, is darkening even the sand and sticking to the sand like glue. You can't even remove that. That's why a lot of people suggest you using soap when you do those, um, but I didn't in that instance. Um, what made these examples successful? It's actually rather simple. And I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again. When you, got, when you have an in-depth micro to macro and fluent understanding of air and water, organic matter, soil biology, minerals, and plant roots and photosynthesis, you can generate and maintain regenerative soil. Everyone can, but it's, it's that understanding that's so key. So why do people fail? Well, they get hooked on the tillage uh, or the synthetic ag perspective, and it's hard for them to shake it. It works, you know, quotation marks around that. It works, you know. Um, a lot of things uh, can, quote, work. Tyranny, dictatorships, they can think that they're working um, but it's terrifyingly bad. David Holmgren's calcium to magnesium ratio, um, he tried to fix it and he got the ratios wrong following something that Albrecht had said and he created concrete. So we have to be really careful with our ratios. We have to understand the mineral ratios that are ideal. And also we have to understand our compost because compost is the buffer um, potentially um, that, that, that can fix that, that, that. You can also have plants do it and them release the carbonaceous materials. But quite often we have to bring in the compost to even start the engine of that process. So the plant, it's because the soil is too shocking for the plant even to really do what it needs and so it puts out hydroxides so we need to be in there we need to be adding imo compost hot compost any compost once you have it thriving so there's a lot of confusion about composting there's a lot of confusion about the biology there's confusion about redox um, reduction and oxidation the loss of energy and the gain of energy the organic matter is the sink it's the actual battery and the place where all the energy from photosynthesis is held. I don't understand why these things haven't been taught as fundamentals in school. Maybe because it exposes how ridiculous and stupid we have been with our nutrition and our health and what we eat and how we eat it. It's, it's wild. And I've had private conversations with doctors um, and in the medical world, they can't talk about this because the implications throw so many, um, so many things out the window. Uh, and this is, this is an undeniable aspect of everything. And if you start digging into this, 
you'll find that redox, aka, you know, the gain or loss of energy, loss of energy is oxidation. And so the loss of energy oxidation in humans is inflammation and cancer. So in the soil, it's the death of the soil. All these things are one thing. That's why it's so imperative that we understand this stuff fluently. I've got a video on that on my on my channel as well. If you just look that up on, on Redox, if you want to check out that. And then people have chemistry fears. The problem with chemistry, it was never taught properly. We had to do all those balancing equations, make the moles, and ah, that's all so well designed to make us upset, well designed to make us hate it. I think all those courses in high school were designed to make it so that you wouldn't want to do it. Um, because the reality is <laughs> the chemistry, all those chemistry equations, um, the ones that matter can be made real and you can do them hands-on. And so just like bake, everyone's like, baking bread is chemistry. And it's like, yeah, well, it doesn't feel like that when you're making it. It's awesome. And they're like, well, you know, everything can be chemistry if you know the equations. And so I'm here to tell you that if you teach chemistry hands-on and pragmatically through soil, A, chemistry suddenly becomes understandable, and B, it's actually vital to like show what these things actually are and actually doing. And it's undeniable at that point too. And that's also, I think, part of the reason why they try to push people away from it because it goes across domains and um, like the microscope, it's a bridge builder. And, you know, lack of sort resources and skills. Um, you might not have a microscope. You might not have the skills of the microscope yet. Um, but I'm here to tell you that you can gain those skills. I'm coming out with programs to make these things doable by anyone, anywhere, with resources that are not ideal um, and, and, and pathways to adapt, to, to scale up, to, you know, all these sorts of things. I'm, I'm, I'm building all those things to make it so that people can fill in those gaps. You really can do this. Um, that's what, you know, today is all about. Um, just here to, to show you all these things and, and, and share, I'm just here to share. Uh, and, um, so let's go deeper together. Uh, cause there's, uh, there's more to tell you. Uh, so that wheel, those five steps, you know, we're going to delve into them one by one. And we're going to start with air and water because it's not just any air. It's not just any water. It's a Goldilocks amount. And the thing about air is it has everything. It has all the elements for life in it. This is the actual equation for all organic matter. It's some combination of these things with, and it has other things added in always, but this is the backbone of all life. Organic matter is made out of the elements that are found in every single breath of air. In other words, when we say the breath of life, most people were absolutely correct in believing that that was the breath of life. It is. Every breath has all the potential for life. And not only, not only that, it has microbes. It has bacteria and fungi. It has spores. I, I actually at mycelium heard some say that it was up to 200 spores in every 
breath. Potential. Every breath is potential. Every breath has the life force components in it. It's the carbon cycle. The heart of the carbon cycle is photosynthesis. That's why anyone talking about CO2, if they're not talking about restoring the oceans, the kelp forest, it, 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 it doesn't, it's a non-starter. We need photosynthesis to return. And in fact, um, it's going, we need all the fungi to return to the soil. And if you look closely at this, you notice that fungi releases, you know, 11, over 11 times as much um, as, as, as humans do. And when we bring them back into the soil, they'll release even more. But don't worry. Um, when we increase the size of the engine, we can handle more fuel. CO2 is the fuel in the engine for photosynthesis. But it's that photosynthetic capacity the leaves themselves, the plants themselves, the kelp forests themselves. We've lost 90% of the kelp forests off the California coast. When 50 to 90% of the oxygen in America comes from those kelp forests, do you think we're going to have a, a, like a physiological reaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't talk about the oxygen. They just talk about the carbon, okay? It's fundamentally flawed how, how these things are being played out. The reality is we can handle the carbon release. We need to balance things responsibly just like we would any checkbook. Um, and we've just desertified the planet um, and removed the carbon. And so it really comes down to the fact that there's declining oxygen levels. The atmosphere is leaking all those life-giving elements. Um, it's shrinking and it all has to do with the soil. These cycles are so incredibly important to understand because if you look at this, on one side, you've got cations and on the other side, you've got anions. Plant needs both. So the plant literally is going to be on the gradient of the root. At the tip, it's the most acidic. It's going to be able to release the most protons so it gets the most cations out. And as those root hairs age, it goes back further and further along the root hairs, the more alkaline and oxidized they become, which means that they can trade in anions. And, and also the soil... <laughs> If the soil is bad, they'll just release hydroxide and kill the soil. So that's why it's so incredibly important that we do our part so that the plant is in that Goldilocks range so they can choose anions or cations easily and then just rely upon mostly pumping out the protons. The nitrogen cycle is very similar, like we talked about. We have so much going on down below in the soil for us and then we have it also happening in the plant leaves. So this fixation in the leaves, nitrogen fixation from free associating rhizobacteria, and then, and then also the, the nodule forming ones that we can see. And this really comes down to the fact that we've relied upon things that we can see. I remember arguing with Dave Jackie years ago about the nodules or non-nodules of of plants and whether they fix nitrogen or not. And he was saying, honey, like locust does not fix nitrogen. You're spreading lies and all this stuff. And it's like, how would they have nitrogen rich seeds if they didn't fix nitrogen somehow? 
They don't have nodules, but they're doing it. And so this was before we had the knowledge in permaculture of all of this. And now we know that nitrogen fixation, it, it happens in all the trichomes, all the plant hairs on all plants. So all plants are nitrogen fixers when they're, when they're natural, when they're allowed to be, be who they are, you know? And they're given the actual digestion and the internal and external parts of their bodies that they um, evolved with. So, so it's really photosynthesis and plant roots interacting with that, that rich air substrate. The air here is so rich and all of these photosynthesis is at the heart of all of this. Okay. And, and the nitrogen fixation is, is the other, other, other part of this, right? So it's all pulling out of the air. And then the, the plant roots. Those plant roots, if, if they're healthy, they're going to be able to provide all the protection the plant needs by trading um, and exudates with, with, with microbes. And they're going to be adding in energy into the soil. And energy creates the maglev train effect. How are they having nutrients catapulting towards you across kilometers of space? To It's because it's like a maglev train. So the nutrients are traveling along the hyphae, the, 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 the fungi, the fungal network, the fungal highway, the internet of the soil with that energy. And so you're like, oh, well, how does the hyphae get it off the organic matter? They literally run through it. They myceliate through it. And then the whole organic matter chunk glows. And so they're myceliating through these and their batteries they're plugging into. The chunks of organic matter that you see under the compost microscope where the, where the mycelium is going into it and coming out of it, that's the highway. And the microbes are flying along it and the microbes are holding the nutrition. And inside them, they're traveling and then they go and get eaten by the plant roots because plant roots eat microbes. They're not vegans. Um, they're omnivores. Um, and so they, they're, they're, they're eating them alive and some of them are surviving because they're endophytes. They can fix nitrogen. And this process of charging the soil is what photosynthesis does. And all over the world, the soils are acidifying because they're gaining an energy. Acidification is the gain in protons, which is H+. So that's an electron. So, and, and that happens from, from water being part of photosynthesis. So it's hydrolysis inside the plants. So we're adding all this energy right into the soil through photosynthesis. The, it's charging the soil up so nutrients and microbes can flow around freely. And, and, and they do. And so th this, this is happening all around us. And the thing is, none of our machines, none of our technology can touch this. Not even close. This is the real technology. This is what we were always meant to learn from.
this is the living textbook around us. And it doesn't get at any higher level than this. Um, photosynthesis is the power and the engine. We should be teaching photosynthesis every single year. We should be writing about photosynthesis. We should be talking about it. It is the wonder that makes everything work. So, and it's how we're going to get ourselves out of all the situations. So, <laughs> soil minerals. Now, I know Chris Trump will say, I, for the longest time, really felt like if I just have the IMOs there, they'll unlock everything that's necessary. Um, and if you bring in the materials that are in all the preps, then yes. Remember, there's seawater recommended. Diluted seawater is recommended. That is like every nutrient known to man. There's like, like vanadium and like, 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 like everything, there's gold, there's everything that you could imagine in seaweed and seawater. So, I mean, a chicken or egg, you know, for, for a lot of these things with our current testing methods, but I'm pretty sure we're doing two things at the same time. When we use IMOs or compost teas, we change the pH and EH of the soil because the microbes have the greatest control of that. And we actually release things that are unseen. But then we're also bringing them in. And then we're also training microbes by bringing it in to unlock that and feed on that. And so they're like, where's more of that? And then they find it in the, in the environment around them. And then because they're embodying it, because it's what bacteria do, then the, 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 the tree roots or the plant roots will take it up and then consume it. But the, you need molybdenum for nitrogen fixation to occur. You need molybdenum for the blush on your red lettuce to show up. You need molybdenum for your purple cannabis <laughs> to sell top drawer, right? So this is a big deal. And the reality is soil mineral deficiencies and antagonisms are often the limiting factor when everything else seems to be right. Because they don't like to play nice. They like to fight. They are aggressive. Minerals hate each other. <laughs> but no, the, very few like each other. Um, I don't think we can anthropomorphize on that. Come on now. But, but the reality is it's like cobalt is never in a pure form. It's always bound and we need it in the right pH, EH zone, so that it's actually available and, 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 and can break down and become bioavailable through the, the biology. Uh, so all of these things are really critical to understand because if you don't have cobalt, you can add microbes, but they'll die off. And there are cobalt deficient soils. Um, Dan Kircher has documented this, John Kemp has documented this, and the reality is cobalt has to be added at such a low amount that IMOs, the seawater, or seaweed, would take care of it, um, for the most part. You, you would have to test, like, I mean, that's the thing is there are certain instances where doing what 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 john has suggested with actually having a chelated form of cobalt could be could be right 
I, and this is also where I love to exist. I always want to be of the mind that, of an open mind, that we're always learning here because the microbes are always teaching us what they do. Uh, and, and, and cobalt powers those microbes because all microbes are dependent on B12. And B12 is the center, is, is, it's, all vitamin Bs are biological vitamins. Um, they're, they're required for cellular metabolism and metabolism, come on, Matt. Um, and, and so you might need to add cobalt. You might do it trickily, right? <laughs> you might do it as a foliar spray. You might, because uh, you don't want it to lock up in your soils. You, there's a bunch of different things you do. You, it might just be in the substrate of what you're adding already in enough amount. And the IMO unlocked in enough amount. But you would test for that is all I'm trying to get to. Um, because there's lots of people doing different things, lots of people with different stages in their transitioning. Um, many of my students are like, you know, I've never used a fertilizer, Matt. Um, but the reality is, you know, all the food production is even the organic you know they're doing fertilizers and maybe it's a manure fertilizer but that's fertilized and they're adding so it's really important really important um as feeds lose essential elements this is a different supply chain issue they pass that deficiency on to the animals and then the manures pass that deficiency on in the next layer in the the cycle for organic farms so as these supply chain things hit and as deficiencies hit, we see weird things coming from different angles that we may not expect. And that's why testing is so critical. So I'm in my lab and recommend citizen science labs should be everywhere. So soil organic matter is another part of this. And it's just carbon. Um, this is the boondoggle thing around, car uh, around carbon, like in different states in America, they're literally burning up like all their excess carbon um, to make bio, to make um, uh, uh, biogas. Uh, and then they've got all this biochar and it's like a waste product. So there's like incredible amounts of confusion currently out there. And this is from a grandfathered in program from the early nineties around, um, um, around syngas. He has an old term that you might not know. Um, but, but like literally there's so much organic matter all around that's being wasted that could help all the gardens, help all the farms, be turned into biochar, could be, you name it, just so much. And it's stupid, it's awful, it's, it's, it's a crime, it's brutal that these things are happening. And it's almost like, since we've been talking about it so much, and now since they're using similar words and greenwashing, the work that we've all been doing this whole time kind of makes you suspicious that they don't have the right intention behind their seemingly, yeah, they don't. So this is why I talk to people. It's funny, like someone was talking about like working with billionaires and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, huh, I don't work with billionaires. I work with people that have farms with people with gardens that are trying to scale up or with people with families or with, with, with homeschoolers and, and, and schools and teachers and community leaders, but communities and, and individuals and real people. Um, so yeah, there's something going on there. Um, and 
it's life. The organic matter is all the building blocks of life again. So when we're breaking it down, we're making biochar or we're making compost, we are creating raw potential. And biochar, one of the cool things about biochar is the magnet. Biochar is just just grabs everything around it. And that's why you need to make sure it's biochar and not char. Um, I had someone like, who is like a biochar salesman be like, yeah, you just throw it on the ground and then it's biochar. And I was like, what? No. Because um, as the studies in, I believe uh, the Netherlands proved that if you do that in a temperate forest, you just add the raw char it eats the humus because it's a magnet and destroys the forest soil. So skip that. Let's just inoculate it with awesome compost for the exact thing we're going to grow. So woody compost for perennials, bacterial dominant, more sugar, more kitchen scrap, more grassy, like, like, uh, you know, uh, your mowing clippings that kind or your weeds vote that kind of compost is more for the garden and so you put that those respectively on the biochar or use the char when you're composting and speed your composting up and control it better primo compost comes when you make it with biochar it buffers it holds nutrients it holds water it holds life add that biochar because the reality is you increase your water holding capacity by three times to the percentage of the biochar. So you add 10% biochar to your soil profile, that's 30% more water holding capacity in that soil. Wild stuff, right? Wild stuff. And like I said, it's the battery, but it's also holding more nutrients because it increases your cation exchange capacity. It actually gloms onto those clay particles like we saw in that picture, right? Gloms onto the sand and it actually is making it so that more nutrients can hold onto the sand and clay. So it's extending your soil. It's upgrading your soil. It's also buffering and, you know, going between those, those, those minerals that are fighting. And, and then of course, organic matter holds more water. We talked about that at the beginning. 1%, 20,000 more plant available water per acre in gallons. And then it holds the life that is going to be ultimately the PHEH controller. And let's get into that. The soil biology is amazing. You've probably heard of the soil food web. Elaine Ingham and her husband, Robert Ingham's baby, along with like, I think six other individuals, Together, they wrote the ecological monogram. Her husband's you know, still at it, still teaching in, in university. She went solo and started teaching people like me, Chris Trump, starting like 20 years ago now. And I think Chris Trump is one of the, I think Chris Trump is the earliest Elaine Ingham student that I know of. Um, and, and I was able to extend all the things that she taught me and add way more arrows to this soil food web diagram in my work, every single one of these is researched and, uh, and cited in my book, Regenerative Soil. And this is what she taught me. 
you know, those exudates, those cakes and cookies feed the bacteria and fungi, the pro protozoa, and the nematodes feed upon the bacteria and fungi, and their waste unlocks that nutrition from the bacteria and fungi, and then the plant roots feast on that. And that's not all, though. We know now that primary is the rhizophagy cycle, and this, this is so, so wild. This is the key, the actual key to compost tea. It's going to tie into your gift later, and we'll talk about um, but this is the, the plant roots are seeking, they're actually seeking nutrients out They're, they're This is why they, they chase water, but they also chase nutrients and their tip, they're draining all the nutrients around them because they're bombarding it with protons and they're getting all the nutrients out of it and sucking it up. But they're also releasing these, the cakes and cookies and a lot of other things. And it's passive and they can't control it. And so if they're releasing monosaccharides, simple sugars, they're gonna attract pests. So the, the exudates could actually harm the plant if they're not healthy exudates. So like, you know, the cakes and cookies story kind of changes a little bit, right? Um, it's, it's not the most apt metaphor now that we understand rhizophagy. Really what they're doing, the roots are farming the microbes and then sucking them in and destroying them. And the ones that survive, it's like they're shearing their, their, their coats and their coats reform as they form the root hairs. Root hairs don't form without microbes. This has been proven. And so they've shed their coats and now they reform them as they get pushed out of the root hair. It's really, truly incredible. They're farming the microbes. And then the ones that don't get harmed, the ones that form their own special shield are actually converting. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're actually fixing nitrogen and converting the attack into food. So they're like, don't attack me, eat, eat, just eat, eat. And the plant roots like, this is cool, keep going. And this is how endophytes exist inside the plant. So, and this is also the pathway that gets hijacked from mycorrhizal fungi. So we're seeing the evolutionary pathways now open up. This is recent. This is brand new. This was first published in my book, Regenerative Soil. Jeff Lowenfeld read about it in my book. My hero, Jeff Lowenfeld read about it in my book. I had based so many things that I was doing off of what he was doing. And now it's the cycle coming back. And he just wrote and is about to release Rhizophagy, his latest book. And, he, and talking to him, he got so excited. He's like, I'm going to have to go back and do all, redo all my books now, Matt, because all the things that we were talking about. So this push and pull, this is true science at work. You know, this is the answer to like why compost tea is effective. Elaine England's life work of compost tea, her, her and her husband did the you know, the soil food web, but Elaine Ingham owns the compost tea. That is all her. That is whole hog. <laughs> she owns that baby. And she's been promoting it for this whole time. And now we know why it's so beneficial. Because they go right in. And that plants feasts on the microbes from the compost tea. And that's why doing it at the drip line where the root tips are Yes, 
Yes, we now know why. And thanks to Dr. James F. White. So those microbes are feasting on the protons and the, and the sugars because microbes feed on energy too. Um, and they're giving back their microbial metabolites, their manures, but they're also triggering the plant. They're releasing things to cause the plant to react. And it's actually the microbes sending out signals that causes the plant to change their exudates. And so the whole thing, we're like, the plant's in control. Um, uh, the, the reality is it's a chicken or egg situation. The reality is a shotgun blast of, of just excretion and secretion and um, old dead cells being sloughed off. And 90% of the exudation gets reabsorbed. So it's not the same kind. It's like, it's like a, like a vortex of, of nutrition and energy that's coming in and coming out. Uh, we think of ourselves as uh, hard surfaces, but we're actually porous. 60% of what touches our skin goes in. Same thing here. Um, and if things aren't healthy, if there's not good photosynthesis, they literally call in the pests and the pathogens and the viruses and the diseases. And in the healthy plants, those things get destroyed or retasked. And we've proven it. Healthy plants... And this is why um, I, I'm not a doctor, but, but I see the controversies and I see the interviews happening. And all of us are talking behind the scenes quite candidly off record about it. We know that there is correlation to the human body and we have to get the food right and get this in, in practice because it will all benefit. All of us will health-wise benefit. A, it's going to be like double the harvest. A, it's going to be regenerative organic. The people are going to transition to regenerative um, profitably instead of losing money. Um, people are going to be, it's going to be a like, a, like a renaissance, a farming renaissance. <laughs> they make money. They're respected. They're the heroes of the story. Um, the linchpins of our society are suddenly exalted and recognized for who they are. And many of us join them in that. Many of us become those heroes that are now just working day jobs. So now to have a small garden and now have a market garden that's slowly trying to transition. What have you? This is the moment. This is the time. We have the answers. I've literally shown you things in this presentation that people could take and dramatically change everything they're doing with just these pieces. And the three things that I've shared online, um, three things that Chris Trump has shared also. And you, you, you can do everything. You could start. You can get the results that you're looking for. But you can go further. You can be inoculating things. Rhizobia, this is mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and by the way, mycorrhizal fungi is not in your hot compost. Um, when you let things age, the fungal numbers go up as things are still, but they're saprophytes. They're not mycorrhizal fungi. Very important to understand. You have to inoculate things. Rhizobia is actually in the compost. Wildly enough, if you get um, like any nitrogen fixers in there, 
it'll carry through the heat just fine. And if you have um, manure from animals eating nitrogen fixers, it'll come through just fine too. It's in their digestion, I've discovered. So it passes through hot compost. It passes through their digestion. Rhizobia, which is the nitrogen fixing bacteria that is so commonly sold everywhere that makes the beautiful um, nodules that we see that we visually say we did it. It's in the compost already. Every compost I test, it's there. So, so rest assured, you got this, okay? You got this. And it's in the plant, it's in the leaves. The, they're actually inside the phloem. They're flowing in the phloem. All those microbes, the cerveza yeast is inside there. The, the lactobacillus that is, that is helping plants, all these things that you're spraying on, they are all on the surface and inside in fortressing your plants. So use the biofertilizers, use the biostimulants, use the biocontrol, the buffers and the filters. They're going to do it all. They are the linchpin for the highest levels of health. Soil biology also has the greatest effect on soil pH and EH and nutrition. So if you're like, oh, I've got a deficiency and you up the IMOs, and you see that go away, that's why. That's why, you know, Chris Trump's work is so darn effective. That's why he's in, you know, almost all my books um, and in all my courses, uh, because it really works. And he's continuously creating new preps. He learned a ton from Master Cho. He learned a ton from Elaine Ingham, but he's fluent now and he has been for years. And so he keeps creating new preps. Same thing with Steve Raisner. He's fluent. And so it's in this fluency that we start creating things that are new. So, you know, how does this all gather momentum? Uh, maybe you see the pieces, maybe you feel a little overwhelmed at this point. You're like, well, huh. <laughs> I get it. I mean, at the start of this, when I was writing the book, Regenerative Soil, I felt overwhelmed, but start here. The plant's photosynthesis, it's just that simple. The energy from the sun creates a flywheel of benefit that continues to grow and grow and grow. Just like you put a deposit in the bank, you're putting deposits in the soil bank. Every day is a new gift to that soil and to all that rely upon it. So it's that rhythm, it's photosynthesis. This is why they would always plant immediately after harvest, the same day, the moment after harvest at, at Singing Frog Farm, to circle back to that first example, they didn't let up. They always had those perennial hedgerows year round pumping exits into the soil. So the microbes can find safe harbor there in, in, in those colder winter months um, when things are slowing down in the beds um, to a degree. Uh, of course, it's warm in California in the area they were at, so it's not that slow. Um, so what can we expect from all this, Matt? Um, there's a lot of stuff you talked about. Uh, what are the actual benefits? Well, we're talking about pest infection and virus and disease immunity. That's the part that John Kemp has, has really taken from the literature, from people like Don Huber, um, Elmer, um, 
and 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 Olivia Cousin and others. He's really mapped that out very well. And I've been able to, um, with his, his, his permission, share all that in my books and in my courses. And um, because I mean, he does such a good job with that pyramid. I, I could share you all the different, all the different things, you know, uh, from the raw actual um, literature that he got it. Because when I started talking to John about it, he just simply gave me the information. And so I went and read all the original sources that he got his information from, which, you know, is fantastic. Um, that's, you know, that's, that speaks, this speaks to John and his character, I believe. Um, but this is what he's been mapping out and what he is so good with, but that bottom half of this pyramid, it's very mapped out, but the top half is completely ambiguous. The, the biology is unnamed and it's only described as robust. And that's, you know, where I felt like I really could take this and, and, and amplify it. And you get a, a kind of a preview of what that's like uh, in my, in that course, um, in the YouTube, I did it, I did a, a preview of that this week. It was really popular. People are loving it. So, so I go into that. It's, it's really incredible when you have the biology and the minerals working together because that's the only way you get to that top of that pyramid and you achieve true immunity. So high nutrient density, bricks, plant sap analysis, you can verify this. Um, we're seeing plants at such high levels of nutrition, polysaccharide levels. Um, they, are, they are producing plants that are completely different than the plants that are available in the grocery store. And they harken back to the way plants used to be. And I know that not every, everything is 90% deficient compared to what it was 60 years ago, but um, it ranges from 37% to 90, depending on what we're talking about. So it's incredibly important that we start this process again of rebuilding the soil so that we can rebuild the plant nutrition and then ramp it up every year and rebuild the food back to what it once was. And I did go and find those original studies. Um, that's how I know that it goes down to 30%, depending on what we're talking about. Um, but it's everything. It's everything. And so while we have the volume, we got the visual, we got the bushels, we got the 50 bushels. Ah! It's meaningless when, when you have to eat like 12 bowls of corn to get the equivalent of one corn of cob. You know what I mean? It's like 50 years ago. So this is so critically important. Uh, part of the reason why we have so much gut inflammation, part of the reason why we have so many gut issues is because we're eating so much because we're starving. When you start eating really nutrient-dense foods, you can eat less and you can start fasting for the first time. Maybe you're like, I never can fast. I'm always hungry. I'm always, ah. This is why. So faster maturation rates and higher yields. This is what every farmer wants. I want it faster and I want more and I want it to be better. And literally this is the money-making proposition right here. And this is why it's winning. This is why it's spreading because it's true. Farmers that switch to regenerative, that get their soil in coherence, get their biology robust, they are growing their food faster again and again and again. They're seeing it ramp up. 
and they're also seeing higher and higher yields at the same time as they see the nutrient density increase. So the plants are reaching their highest level of expression, their genetic, like, like their, the actual genetic expression, the limitations of it, they're reaching that, the full genetic expression. This is happening right now. And, and it's also those increased secondary metabolites and aromatics. So it's the smell, it's the taste, it's the terpenes. Um, this is why in cannabis, this is why it's, in, in, it's the terroir in viticulture. This is why the vineyards, they're all switching to this. In fact, in areas where vineyards do not get 10-year leases on their our 20-year leases, 10 or 20-year leases any longer on their vineyards, people doing regenerative ag without even getting their first yield are getting those leases for the first time in decades. They're being handed out because this is the future and everyone knows it. It's so much better and they can make so much more money because they're getting so much more out of every square foot, every harvest, every, every handful, every fruit. This is the game changer. This is the only reason it works actually. Um, without this component, without it actually being better, we would, it would be a non-starter. It'd be like trying to sell you like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, something that's false, something that would fail you. And I, I, A, I can't do that um, integrity-wise. And then B, man, this is about our future, isn't it? It's about our kids, isn't it? Let's get this right. And, and the beautiful thing is we can do it right, and it's way better than what they're doing financially. So we can set farmers free financially as we get healthier food, that food becomes our medicine finally again because it was and then massive decrease in fertilizer inputs and even natural fertilizer like even even manures if you get to a certain point in amino k sugar amino um, nitrogen sugars you actually don't need to add nitrogen this has already been proven um, people are getting incredible yields of corn which is you know a heavy feeder with no inputs so what I'm telling you is we can knock it down, even if you're doing natural fertilizers, we can knock it out down. So your costs can drop, your costs can go down, your labor can go down. You can enjoy this process much more. And so this is something that we can retire more into. This is something that we can do longer into the later years of our life. This is something that we can do more on the side as a hobby and have it turn into a full-time job easier because of how powerful it is. This is for you. This is for me. This is for all of us. I'm, I'm, I'm setting up on a new site here in Texas. We just moved on here. As we were moving, I launched that Kickstarter like a madman, but it, that came again from me praying. And man, was it an answer to prayers. And holy cow, I'm so glad I listened. It was four times bigger than my first Kickstarter. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe a little less than four times. Almost. 
crazy, crazy, wild. And I believe that it was because I was listening, because I was taking all things, you know, I always say this, right? Um, All things in their season. And so, and so I, I'm setting up now too. It was also in the middle of a drought, a crazy drought. So if I had cut the ground, the Fenton, the, you know, the, the, the Fenton effect would happen. And I would have had gassed off all the, the nutrients that were there. So not doing something in that time period of arriving at first, when that drought was happening, waiting for the rains to arrive. Now it's greening up. My neighbor is going to be able to do a shallow till run of this whole side area. And then the whole fenced in one acre, I have all the cover crops prepared and I'm going to be able to direct seed a bunch of it. I'm going to, I'm going to do some throw sowing, no doubt. I'm a classic, right? But I also want to deep seed things uh, in case the drought comes back. Um, and so I'm going to be doing a Jang seed um, drill um, market garden style. And this is all in preparation for the soil to be developed enough to lay down uh, drip line and set up permanent rows and to do a natural farming based market garden system set out in zones according to pH ranging from just above seven to down to 6.5 so that we've got like blueberries and then like artichokes and then all the way up to my, you know, the amaranth, the giant amaranth, they got to have that in there so that it creates the center of that, that, in, that chart on the pH of, of nitrogen and the succession of plants and, and all of that. I'm going to show that in reality, in that one acre zone right over there. So huge things are coming. I have so much to do. I'm going to be sharing it with you all. And I know that you probably feel the same, but it always comes back to these five simple things. It's the air and the water, the organic matter, the soil biology, the minerals, and the plant roots, and the photosynthesis working together harmoniously. So I have a gift for you. And this is going to really be more for next time. Okay. <laughs> so this gift is for you. It's a download. It is the essentials, the compost and compost tea recipe essentials from my book, Regenerative Soil. I want you to have this. It's a download on my website. You can click the link in the description of the YouTube right here, right now. And you can, you, you can download this. And, and this is this, man, if I had this when I was starting out, this kind of guide is so valuable. This has uh, in- incredible insights, things that I, I only I got to see because I was uh, behind the scenes, things that um, folks uh, passed on to me. Um, uh, and I put together with other things that other folks passed on to me. There's incredible insights in here that will help unlock your soil, incredible clarity, and it's going to dovetail with next week. Because next time is compost demystified. So we're going to be, uh, and I'm going to get my font fixed. That is not the right font. <laughs> so, so, but next time, um, the Adobe account didn't, um, didn't recognize the, new, the, the, the font here. 
Um, but next time we're going to be delving into all the different kinds of compost, all the different confusions that people have around compost so that you have the best compost, the easiest compost, the most powerful compost. And, and it's not a backbreaking affair. It's not this whole to do. We're going to make it amazing. So this week, that, that's going to come about on Tuesday. So we're going to have our next, our next uh, gathering on Tuesday. But this week, I want you to do something. This is our challenge. We're going to do a challenge for the first time. Here we go. I want you to take one action to build soil. I want you to share it online. And I want you to hashtag regenerative soil. Now, this could be a lot of things. You could be making compost tea or compost extract. You could be making biochar or just spreading biochar and amending with it. You could be planting a cover crop of nitrogen fixers. All of those are building your soil. All of those are improving your soil. But share it. Do it. Share it. And hashtag regenerative soil. Take that action. Build that soil. Get your hands out there in the soil. I'm going to be out there with you. I'm going to be sharing. I have a whole, I have a whole list of things I've got to go do. Um, now that the rains have come, now that there's some moisture in the ground, now that things can start growing and recovering again, oh, it's the moment. Um, I've got to take advantage. And in fact, that's why I'm actually extending the course sign up on regenerative soil. I'm extending and pushing it out by a week. So if you were interested in that, I'll talk more about that later in the week. You can, of course, you know, go check it out if you'd like to. Um, but but today we're just talking about building soil, just getting excited about soil. Um, and this week I'm just going to be getting pumped and then we're going we're to be doing a lot of things together. I'm doing a lot of lives. So if you aren't subscribed, make sure you're, you subscribe to this YouTube channel because I'm going to be going live left and right. I'm going to be doing a bunch of different things. I'm just showing you an update of the auto composter that's been long enough to kind of give you guys an idea of, of how it's working. And, and I really want to showcase all the different things I'm doing to prepare the land so that I'm prepared for next year. Because it really does come back to that. I, I'm so grateful that you're here because of that message. We have the ability in this time right now to actually make a difference for next year. We can build that soil. We can plant those gardens. We can get those chickens done. We can get the milking done. We can all of the above. And if you're like, wow, the drought was really bad this year. Okay, well, this is the winter that we're gonna put in ponds, right? This is the winter that you're gonna drill that well. This is the winter that you're gonna get those tanks and put those gutters on so that you collect that rainwater. This is the, the year that you're going to go crazy with cover crops. And this is the year that you're going to buy food storage um, of the things that you can't grow, right? Your fats, usually. Usually people are, are in their food forest designs. It's always the fats. So, so this, is, this is me calling out the warning. This is me calling out to you and, and saying that the solutions are beautiful. They're profitable. They're exciting and fun. But if we don't work while the day is here, while we're in the sun, we're going to face consequences and they're not pretty. And those consequences, um, they very well look like they're going to be taken advantage of. 
So, so, so um, opportunist, disaster capitalism, blah, 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 all that above. Um, let's head that off, you know, um, at the pass. And let's establish our regenerative homestead by establishing our regenerative soil. And let's start producing food at a rate that is in abundance so that we can share. Let's save our seed so that we can share. And let's be open about what we're doing. Let's talk to our friends and family. Let's share our confidence and our, our understanding so that we can spread this understanding, so that we can spread this preparedness, so that our communities are strong, so that they're prepared, so that our communities, no matter what happens, has food, no matter what happens and comes our way, has water. We want to make sure these things are locked in. And uh, that's what, you know, this week's all about kickstarting and getting our soils right so that the foundation for all of our systems, permaculture, regenerative, ag, homesteading, all of it is on a strong, solid, and firm foundation. Thank you all for being here. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And I'll see you guys soon.